I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you like what you hear, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy it. I'm so excited to discuss my sponsor today, which is Page One Books, because my summer book bundle is ready on pageonebooks.com. And the bundle that I've put together includes three books that I picked, uh, Montauk by Nicola Harrison, More Myself by Alicia Keys, and I Miss You When I Blink by Mary Laura Philpot, all of which have been on this podcast here. Uh, it includes a Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, Beach Tote, a cute little library card pencil slash cosmetic case, and a water bottle for staying hydrated, plus a little... Um, thing of sun lotion. So go to page1books.com, page one with the number one. So page number one books.com and check out my page one books summer bundle. Buy it as a gift, a housewarming, if you actually go somewhere or just give it to yourself. Everybody needs a treat. We've had a long spring. <laughs> page one books.com. This is day five, the last day of this week for my July book blast. And today is Fiction Friday. I'll be releasing a few episodes of novels that I think are pretty awesome and can't wait to introduce you to these authors. I'm doing the July book blast because I interviewed a lot of people during quarantine and the books came out during quarantine and I would love them to get the airtime they need now to get the word out. Also, a lot of these books are great beach reads. And if you have any time this summer, I would love for you to hear more from these authors directly. So please enjoy Fiction Friday and stay tuned. This whole week was Memoir Monday, Debut Tuesday, Beach Reads Wednesday, Thrilling Thursday, and now today, Fiction Friday. I hope you've had a chance to listen to a few this week and enjoy this one. Bye. Karma Brown is the best-selling author of four novels. Her debut novel, Come Away With Me, was a Globe and Mail Best 100 Books of 2015. A National Magazine Award-winning journalist, Karma has been published in a variety of publications, including Self, Red Book, Today's Parent, Best Health, Canadian Living, and Chatelaine. Her latest book is Recipe for a Perfect Wife, a novel. Karma lives just outside Toronto, Canada, with her husband, daughter, and a labradoodle named Fred. When not crafting copy or mulling plot lines, she is typically working out, making a mess in the kitchen, and checking items off her bucket list with her family. Her nonfiction project out in early 21 is called Time Change. Welcome, Karma. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much for having me. I'm sorry it took us so long. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's been crazy, right? It's so, true. There have been yeah. some world events that got in the way, some changes and everything. So anyway, yes. here we are. So I'm delighted to be talking to you finally. Me too. Me so too. your most recent book, Recipe for a Perfect Wife, for listeners who might not know what it's about, would you mind giving a quick synopsis? Sure. It is a dual narrative book. So it takes place in the 1950s and the other character, you you visit her in 2018. And the book takes place in the same house. So these two women live in this house, but 60 years apart. And there is a cookbook that the modern day woman discovers that had belonged to the 1950s housewife. And within those pages, she finds some secrets about the life that this 1950s housewife lived in this house that she's now living in somewhat reluctantly as she was dragged from Manhattan to the suburbs. And as their their lives sort of intersect through this cookbook, and it really is an exploration of women and marriage and being a wife and looking at sort of how far we've come from the 50s, if we really have come that far. <laughs> So yeah, it was a really fun, interesting book for me to write. 
I had one of those cookbooks from my mother when she was a little girl, like the Betty Crocker old fashioned one. I have, yes, I have that one. Yeah, I have. So I have it, and and it had my grandmother's notes in it and all the rest. And I like treasured that growing up. And every so often, I would like pull it out and look at the pages and all the pictures of what moms used to look like. And (laughs) I know, I still have those books, and I actually have this thing for vintage cookbooks. So that was one of the inspirations to write this book in the first place because I also loved all those notations. My Mom puts notations in in her cookbooks, and my grandmother has done that. And so some of these cookbooks I have that are not family cookbooks, also looking at the notations in those books and imagining what those women's lives were like, you know, way back when. So yeah, it's, it is. It's sort of like a, you know, like you're panning for gold with information about these women and how they lived back in the 50s and 60s. It's so crazy when there's like an object that passes through time. Like my, I bought my engagement ring as it was a vintage piece I found like in this shop in Charleston, South Carolina. And I'm like, and I wear this ring. Well, actually I copied it, but at first it was the actual ring until we found out it was cracked. But anyway, but I had it and I was like, so who is this woman? Like, who was she? She wore the same exact ring. Like, what was her life like? Like, it all feels like a movie or something. Speaking of movies, by the way, congratulations. I saw that your film rights were film and TV or, yeah, film and TV rights were acquired for this book. That's amazing. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's exciting to imagine them having a life outside of the pages. I mean, I'm often asked, like, who would you cast these characters as if you were casting the movie. And I honestly, it's the worst question to ever ask me because for all of my books, I never know because I don't see them that way. I see them very clearly, but not as, you know, celebrities. So anyway, I like, I like to always ask if anyone has any ideas, let me know because I am terrible at this game. I'm wondering, maybe now I'm blanking on her name. Who's the one who's married to Ashton Kutcher? Oh, um, See, this is why I'm terrible. At no, I'm not good at it either. I'm not a celebrity. <laughs> what is her name? It'll, she it'll was on the me. '70s show with him, right? Yeah. Well, um, anyway, somebody like that, because the big PR job ahead of time, like I mm-hmm. feel being is all put together and like running around and all, and then like wanting to shift gears and become a, a novelist, and I don't know. So it has to be somebody cosmopolitan enough, right? Worldly enough. I don't know. That, that was my first instinct, but I am I'm really bad at casting too. So, so we're both bad at it. So we just won't play that game. Yeah, we won't play. It's sorry, fine. I'll stop the game it's right It's not now. our job anyway. No, it's so not it's our okay. job. So it's okay. I love, by the way, there was such a, a perfect relatable moment, at least for me, when the main character, and now I'm, why do I always blank on the names of all the main characters? I can Nellie remember all the Alice. details. Alice. When Alice relocates to Greenville and leaves her job and her mom is like, so how's your vacation going? And she's like, no, I'm going to be a novelist. Like that is yeah. just so classic. <laughs> That's like, it's like a little <laughs> passive aggressive like yeah. what's up with you anyway I just love that little detail by the way <laughs> yeah because it's really I mean for Alice you know she had this big career in Manhattan that was really important to her and things fall apart for reasons that I won't talk about now because it, it gives away some stuff in the book but she ends up you know holding that secret about what's happened with her career but and everyone's thinking then that she's quite content to go and become this housewife in this housewife in the suburbs and let her husband go to work and she's going to stay home and take care of this really old house that hasn't changed much since the 50s and have babies and you know do her thing that next part of her life but really she's hanging on to this huge ambition that she has it doesn't go away you know, it, it doesn't just leave because she has this thing happen with her job and ends up moving. And that's really part of the theme through the story, too, is that, you know, what 
do women do with this ambition? How can you have that huge career ambition and also have a family? And can you make those two things work? And I don't believe you can have them at the same time. So that is my personal feeling that sometimes something has to take the top position and they just switch back and forth. So, you know, for me, that's, that's personally what has been true for me in my life. But I think this idea of trying to have it all at once puts a lot of pressure and it's really hard to do. I'm sure there are people making that work and good for them, but I personally have found that a really tricky balance. Yes, um, I'm sure a zillion women will agree with that statement. Yeah, <laughs> complexity yeah. of that. I think your book also, though, not only the role as a wife or a mother eventually or whatever, but I think it's also how these two women handle pain, physical and emotional, and how that shifts in terms of how much they share with their spouse, how much they take on themselves, and how that looks like across generations too. Maybe talk a little more about that, or if that was intentional, or. Yeah, well, I think that they, you know, they are, they are living very different lives. And, and really, Nellie, who's the 1950s character, is quite confined by her generation. And for her, you know, independence is something she desperately craves, but is very difficult to get because of the nature of the way that things were within marriages back then. And really, her journey through the story is is getting that independence and and figuring out how to do that for herself in 1956 when nobody is really figuring that out, at women anyway. And for Alice in 2018, she also, she's a very independent woman who is in a relationship with someone and has a marriage. And so how do you keep that part of yourself you know, when you couple up with someone, when you merge your lives together, how do you keep that independence? And in a lot of ways, I think that Nellie is sort of the talisman for Alice around that idea of figuring out how to maintain your sense of self and how to maintain that independence and cope with, as you said, both physical and mental pain through that, but as an individual. So that was a big lesson, really, for both of the women through the story. So let's now pivot to your personal life, if you don't mind. Now that mm-hmm. we've had five minutes, I feel like I'm entitled to ask you oh, your innermost you secrets. Anything, <laughs> anything at all. I No secrets here. You know, it's so funny. I Well, it's not funny, but I was reviewing all your different novels and all the different themes. And I was like, why are all her books somehow about either car crashes or losing babies or <laughs> intersecting lives? Like what is it something must have happened to her that this is the theme that she keeps coming back to over and over and over again? And then I went into like your personal <laughs> essays and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm a moron. Like <laughs> here it is right here. It explains everything. Yeah. Your essay for Self Magazine about your being one month into a relationship with the man who became your husband and finding out that you had a rare form of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, cervical cancer, yep. and having to figure out how to cope with that and eventually what happened with your sister. Oh my gosh. I was like, first of all, I feel like, <laughs> and I know you're working on some sort of nonfiction book, which I'm really interested in hearing what that is. But I, I was like, I want a whole book on this experience. I don't just want, like I left that article being like, tell me more. So tell listeners about what happened to you and, yeah. and then start writing that book. 
Okay. Well, I sort of, I mean, I have written elements of that book in my second novel, The Choices We Make, is really, it is about two best friends and one of them ends up carrying a baby for the other one. And because I, before Recipe for a Perfect Wife, I wrote tearjerker books. It is a tearjerker book and not everything goes according to plan. For me in my personal life, I, my sister was our surrogate and we have a much happier outcome in the sense that, you know, we had no major traumas as we were going through that. So just to back up a little bit about how that happened, when I was 30, I had just met my husband and well, he wasn't my husband then, obviously. I just met this new guy and he was very young. He was only 26 at the time, which I thought was far too young to be serious about. But then a month into our relationship, I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in the cervix, which is a very rare place for them to find it. And what that meant is that I wouldn't be able to have children naturally. So we had to do a quickie IVF, you know, cycle. And it was funny because I, I had been dating him, I think for probably like a month and a half at this point. And I was at the fertility doctor and they were asking me all these questions and giving me my options about, you know, where to get the sperm from, because you need sperm to make embryos. And they said, well, you can get the, get it out of a, you know, we, can, we have a book you can flip through and choose sperm or you can get some from someone you know. And I was like, hey, I have this new boyfriend. <laughs> you know, maybe we can make this work. And we were quite, you know, it wasn't casual. Like it was, it was fast, but we were really quite in love already. And they were asking me questions about him and his, his birthday and his middle name. I didn't know his middle name. And I called him and I said, well, this is the deal. I need to figure out what I'm going to do. And he was like, okay, well, let's do it. Let's just do it and have faith that this is going to be the thing, you know, that we stay together and this all works out. But if we don't, I want you to have the opportunity to have your own children, like genetically your own children. So anyway, it all worked out. I mean, I couldn't carry a baby, but my sister stepped in and one of those embryos, which was frozen for five years, was put in my sister's uterus and she became our oven for nine months. And so my daughter, when she was younger, she used to like to say that she was five years older. Like she would say, I'm not eight, I'm 13, you know, very all knowing because she technically was conceived in 2003, but was born in 2008. Wow. So yeah, that was, you know, we have our one little miracle baby and my sister was our our surrogate and I have been cancer free for a long time since 2003. So 17 years. Oh so it gosh. did all work out in the end. Wow. And it's yeah. just so amazing how your sister, you said in one of the articles, how she, immediately she was like, I'll be the uterus for you. Like yeah. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'm stepping in. And she already had two little kids of her own and she was she just did. like, I'm in. And and then yeah. she did it. She's I, quite bossy, actually. So <laughs> she was quite determined to do that. And, you know, it's an amazing gift for someone to do that for you because I wouldn't be a mother. I mean, I might be a mother in a different way, but I wouldn't be mother to this child. So for me that, you know, it's a really special thing. And as for the themes of my book, you know, I had this life where I was, I had all these plans. I was 30. I was young. I had just finished journalism school. I was in a new relationship and I am a very motivated, ambitious person. I was clear about what I wanted to do. And then I got cancer and my whole life flipped upside down. And so my books are all really about women who are in situations that are challenging, perhaps the most challenging 
you know, we meet them on the most challenging day of their lives. And then they not only survive, but they thrive through that experience. And that has just been sort of an ongoing theme for me, I think, through all my books. That's what I'm interested most in exploring in my novels anyway. Wow, that's just amazing. Yeah. And I thought it was so neat. You said something like how you used to be so much less anxious, right? You were, and then what? you had such a great expression. You once dreamed of being a war correspondent, but now you're yes. someone who sticks to the speed limit. Right, so that's so interesting. Just this idea that now you take on all the anxiety that the situation sort of brought. Like some people are born more anxious, right? And then Mm -hmm. they get through something like this and they're less anxious because they realize, okay, I've been worrying my whole life something bad's gonna happen. It did, and now I'm okay. So they become like more fortified and then you went into it like already like totally confident and rah-rah and then had the setback and now you're more cautious. It's just sort of interesting how people sort of deal with like a trauma essentially. Yeah. Well, and I I think like when you have a trauma like that, it never goes away, right? I mean, I'm cancer free, but that experience lives with me. It has shaped who I am from that time. It shapes all my decisions because life is precious. Everyone knows this, but I think when you have been through a life-threatening experience, you just, I don't know, does it become more precious? I don't know. It's just, you suddenly realize, you know, the well, the whole why me thing, everyone I think has a moment of thinking that, but then very quickly you're like, well, why not me? Why wouldn't it be me? So once you have that happen, the realization that it could happen again, things, you know, bad things happen, even when you do everything right. And that is a very unsettling thing to live through and really understand deep in your core. So yeah, I spend a lot of time now trying not to be anxious about things and to enjoy life. And, you know, I had once gone to to a therapist who was like, well, you know, what do you think about this fact that you're going to worry about your precious life for the next 10 years and worry about all these ways that it could be turned upside down again And then you're okay because the reality is you probably are going to be okay and you will have spent this decade worrying and marinating in this anxiety. And are you really enjoying your life then when you're doing that? So that did resonate with me and I try to remember that. The worry does fade. I mean, it does get easier, but I think, yeah, as you said, some people are natural worriers. I just came to that place a little bit later (laughs) in my life. Maybe I'll flip back the other way and I'll be skydiving when I'm 70. I doubt it, but <laughs> you never know. <laughs> you know, these these why me moments and these traumas and the things that happen that make you aware of the fact, not just intellectually, but feel that life is short. They make you into different, much more feeling type people. Like I almost... Mm-hmm. You don't wish this upon anybody. I wouldn't wish a cancer diagnosis or anything like that. However, I think the aftermath of some of those experiences make life, the rest of life, so much richer. And, mm-hmm. you know, like it sharpens the colors and it sounds so cheesy, but I don't no. know. I just feel like it 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 changes the tune. It's like on a piano, it like goes like the two different things start playing versus just one hand playing. I don't know. yeah. No, I think it does do that. And you're not naive about things anymore. I think, you know, you can bury your head in the sand a little bit, especially when you're young and think that bad things don't happen. People don't get cancer. You know, it just, it it allows me to also be more empathetic with other people and to understand what to say and what not to say and how to, 
you know, sit with someone in a, in a tough time instead of trying to just brush it away or make it better somehow by not talking about it. I have learned how to be more empathetic towards what other people are going through. Um, it doesn't have to be cancer. It can be anything. You know, people have lots of different experiences that can be quite traumatic. So, it, you know, there are, I, I am not a silver linings person. I, I don't know that I ever have been. And I, well, there have been things that I have learned because of this. I would always have rather not had it happen. You know, I don't say that my cancer was a good thing or because I just don't see it like that. It, it would have been nice not to have to go through it. However, there are lessons and learning in that that I now have that I'm grateful for and appreciative of. And I hope it didn't, I didn't make it sound like it was a good thing that you had. Oh, no, you that. didn't. Okay, all right. No, you I didn't. didn't you did. I did I not completely... mean to suggest anybody no, actively no, look I... for bad experiences to happen to them. But... No. And I do think some of that silver lining stuff, and people say that to me all the time, like there's, you know, well, you wouldn't have this, that, and the next thing if, if you didn't go through that. And I'm like, yeah, but I might have other things that I lost because of that, because it, you know, cancer takes a lot away. Any terminal, not terminal, but you know, potentially life-threatening condition or experience, it takes stuff away. So yeah, I just, I don't, I don't think you said that at all. That's not how I heard okay. what you were saying. <laughs> I just like to do the like, yeah, I'm not a silver linings person. Um, okay. Maybe again, when I'm 70, maybe, maybe then who knows? when I'm skydiving, I'll be a silver linings person. Maybe we'll so. See. We'll wait. Well, I'll look up and, <laughs> and see what I can see. Yeah. The one quote I just had to read, and this is from your self article. You said, I would not be a mother to this child who with her arrival took the hell of our experience leading up to her, crushed it into a tiny ball and dropped it down a deep, dark well where it can no longer break my heart. That's just so, I mean, that is beautiful. That's just a beautiful sentiment, a beautiful it, sentence. I just had to read it. Well, it's true. I know my mom, because I was quite sad not to be able to carry my own child, which I think, you know, for people who want to have children, they would understand that perhaps, or who have children and have been able to have, I know pregnancy is not amazing for a lot of women, but I always was sad that I couldn't do that. And my mom had said to me, well, don't worry. Once the baby's here, you won't care how she got here. You won't miss that part because this is the best part. And she was wrong. And so I think that like that, you know, but I can tuck that away. And I think that's what that quote is. It's like, I have her and all the amazing things of being a mother that I can now experience, but it doesn't mean there aren't still, you know, heartbreaks that have to be just put down that well and, and left there. They don't go away. They just maybe go to a dark place where you leave them very. <laughs> or you take little sprinkles of that and put it in novel after novel after novel. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is another way of sort of getting through and coping and making True. sense, I feel like, of, of experiences like that that don't really have a good place to go. Yeah, no, it's true. It's sort of like therapy to some degree. Yeah, it's <laughs> cathartic to be able to do that. So so tell yeah. me about your writing process and how you come up with ideas for your books and then how long they each take. I mean, you've written, what, five novels already? Five, yep. Amazing, like that's a lot. I mean, <laughs> anyway, so tell me about your, your process a little more and how you maintain this level of output. Well, I maintain the level of output because my daughter didn't sleep. And so the truth is that she used to get up at 3.30, 4 in the morning for years and years. And so I finally got to the place where I could no longer watch Dora the Explorer at four o'clock in the morning. And I thought, well, I need to do something with this time 
she's fairly, you know, she's okay. I don't need to really be with her for every moment of that morning time. And so I started writing in the early morning and it's a habit I still have now. And I get up, I mean, she sleep trained me. So now I can't sleep in and she sleeps in, but I can't. So I get up around five, between five and six every day. And I write and it's quiet and peaceful and no one needs anything from me. The rest of the world has not woken up yet. So that's when I do the majority of my really creative writing. I save the emails and the, you know, the other busy work that authors have to do for later in the day when she's at school, even though she's not at school right now. So COVID time is like, who knows what's happening and how I'm actually ever going to write another book. But that's really been my process from the beginning. And I mean, I never wanted to be a writer. So I, when I went to journalism school, I wanted to be a news broadcaster. And that was what I was planning to do. And then I was diagnosed with cancer on my very last day of journalism school and everything switched. And at some point I thought, well, maybe I can write because it's a career that I can have and be home. I don't have to move you know, to Northern Ontario and try to get a job in in a, you know, a small town and live up there away from my family. So it just became a job that I thought I could do. And I, I one day thought maybe I'll try writing a novel and I wrote it and it was awful. And then I wrote another one and that one was not good either. So my debut was actually my third book written. So I guess I've actually written seven, no, wait, eight novels. Just two of them will never see the light of day. Seven. Seven, right? Wait, two seven? More, yeah, two, You're right. two, two, two unpublished. This is why I am, <laughs> I am not a mathematician or a scientist because I can't do math, even simple math. But yes, seven, it feels like 12, <laughs> but some days. As for where the stories come from, it's just I read a lot and I... Because I'm a journalist also, I spend a lot of time, you know, scrolling through news stories and and looking for interesting human stories that way. So that's how I have found or had an idea perk up for my stories. Recipe for a Perfect Wife was different though. It came out of those cookbooks. And I just had this vision of, you know, what what was life like for these women? And these cookbooks were really a legacy. They were often given to women at their wedding showers. And then those cookbooks would get passed down through the generations. And at a time where women really didn't have much of a voice outside of their home, it felt sort of like this really interesting legacy of what mattered to them and what they were doing and how they were really using their voice like through their cooking and, and, and through these recipes. So I just had this image of Nellie in the 1950s trying to choose a recipe and, you know, she's this quintessential housewife and on the surface, she looks very much like the housewife we would imagine from the 50s. But what did her life look like underneath that? And that's where it started. And I feel like there's an undercurrent of a feminist message to the book as well. And I know in the introduction, or maybe it was a, a dedication or something you were saying to your daughter, like you haven't finished doing the work for her yet. Like this is a step. Yep. Did I get So yep. was that conscious? Are we trying to like, tell me about that angle of it. Yeah, I think it, you know, people have asked like, wow, this book is really timely. And you know, why this book now? And I, I've been writing this book for five years before it was published. And so, you know, the realities of what women are going through now were true five years ago and 10 years ago. And we have come 
you know, we have come far from the 50s in a lot of ways, but we still have a long way to go. And it was important for me in doing, you know, I could have written the whole book from 1950s perspective and from Nellie's perspective and just had that story be the story. But what I wanted to do is to look at the difference between those generations. And because we think we're so progressive now, and in some ways we are, but in a lot of ways we are not. And so I wanted to take, you know, Alice's character in particular, and it's much murkier than it is with Nellie's character. And I've had a lot of hate mail about Alice, if we're, you know, interesting, which I'm not surprised by. I knew that going in because as I said, her story is murkier and she does, she can come across as more selfish and, and self-centered, you know, but I, I feel like with her, she's going through this dilemma. She's young. She's making mistakes. She deserves to make mistakes. You know, it's not just, it takes two to tango as they say. So her husband in the story, I get messages about how amazing her husband is and how she's so selfish. And I want to say, no, he's not perfect. He's manipulating things as well and keeping secrets as well. But I don't know why Alice is the one who always gets, you know, she's viewed as the enemy in the story versus him. And I find that really interesting. Every time I get a message about that, I always, I don't respond because that's the rule. But I do want to say, you know, why do you villainize her and not him for doing things that are quite similar? So that was, I I felt that while I was writing it. I do think that that is where we are in society still, where women don't get to make the same mistakes that men do. They don't get away with it the same way. And yeah, I wanted to put that in the book. And that was my own, you know, and I'm, I'm a wife and I stay home. I work from home, but so I do more of the traditional stereotypical things. I do most of the childcare, the doctor's appointments, the grocery shopping, because logistically it's easier for me because I'm home. But, you know, it's important for me with my daughter, especially because she has commented before, well, like you're the dinner maker, like what's for dinner? And I always say, look, I just, because I'm female does not make me especially qualified to cook a meal. You know, I need her to understand that being a a wife and being a mother and being a woman, they are all really different things that all live within the same person. So, you know, that's what I was trying to do with Alice and looking at Nellie. But yeah, I get it. She's a little bit confronting, I think, for people because, you know, I have other people who love her and they really resonate with what she's going through. I find that the older generations, like the 70s plus and the younger ones, like the 35 and under, really resonate with Alice. And But it's that middle age time where people are just like, her husband is so nice. Why is she being so mean to him? So <laughs> it's fascinating. It has been fascinating. Yeah. So aside from not responding to hate mail, what is your <laughs> advice to aspiring authors? Well, I mean, I I read a lot. And I think if you don't read and read a lot of different things, like fiction, nonfiction, different genres that maybe are not totally your thing, but you should give it a try. I think you have to read all the time, a lot as an author. And also just to not, you know, you write as much as you can, uh, be clear about why you're writing. You know, there are some people who want to write because they really desperately want to be published on a shelf with a traditional publisher. And there's other people who write to maybe work through a trauma 
or to work through a part of their life. And perhaps publication is not the most important thing to them. So it's to really understand why you're writing and, you know, to stay connected to your story, you need to write regularly and also then know when to give up and start something new. So there are people who will say, well, never give up, never give up on anything you're working on. And I think sometimes you have to give up. That's why I have two books in a drawer that will never see the light of day because they weren't the right story. They were practice books for me and they were helping me hone the craft and learn how to write a book that was going to get all the pieces I wanted in, but also would be really great for the reader too, like that reading experience. So it's just, you got to practice. It's like anything, you know, you have to practice your craft and know why you're doing it. Love it. Well, thank you, Karma. I'm so glad we finally got together. I feel like I wish I could sit and talk to you for a lot longer. (laughs) (laughs) I know it went by so fast. I know. I looked. I was like, oh no, it's been too long. (laughs) Oh no. Well, I I, thank you so much. Great questions. And it was really nice chatting with you today. You too. I hope we can find a way to to keep this up or meet in person or something. Yes. One day let's meet in person and we'll have a nice drink somewhere and chat. Right? Not through our screens. That sounds wonderful. Okay. Yeah, take care. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks so much to listening to Fiction Friday, part of the July Book Blast of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I hope that you found some really great reads this week. All five days I've launched tons of episodes so that I can entertain you and you can connect with stories and just feel a little better in the world knowing that these stories exist and that these authors are out there. So I hope you enjoyed all of these Fiction Friday episodes and that you had a great day and I hope you have a really great weekend and come back next week because I'm doing one more week, one more five days, I should say, of another July book blast week and I'll have five new fun days then and then back to normal. But anyway, you can have a little like binge podcast fest or something. (laughs) Anyway, have a great weekend. Thanks again for listening to my podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you liked this episode, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sign up for my mailing list at ZibbyOwens.com so you can always hear about the latest things I'm up to. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much to Page One Books for sponsoring today's episode. I hope you'll all check out my summer beach bundle at pageonebooks.com. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thank you.